Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Luke chapter 14. I'm going to discuss verses 25 through 35, the famous cost of discipleship passage in the previous audio in verses which discuss chapter 14 of Luke verses 1 through 24. We saw Jesus in the house of a Pharisee eating a banquet and and giving and delivering to them three anti-Pharisee parables. I'll call it, he healed a man on the Sabbath, had another Sabbath controversy. So we'll pick it up here in verse 25 and 26. Now great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yea, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now great crowds are traveling with him. He's in Perea now. As he's heading up to Jerusalem, it's near the time of the Passover feast, and that's why there were so many people. They had to go down to Jerusalem to the one of the Passover feasts once a year, and so great crowds would, would go to Jerusalem doing that. And they were traveling with Jesus, and they're probably thinking, Whoa, something big's about to happen, Messianic kingdom, peace, prosperity. And so Jesus, in this passage, is going to disabuse these Jews of their erroneous notions about a golden messianic age. They didn't understand the spiritual kingdom that he was about to set up, a kingdom which was going to be ushered in with much, much suffering. And so he's trying to tell them, look, people are going to hate you. They're not going to like you for being a Christian. You're going to suffer persecution. So this is the context. Now, we're going to have to discuss a translation problem to understand this verse. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother. And I remember I was talking to a Chinese person one time, a Christian. I forgot who it was, but she was saying, how can I hate my father and mother? Because, you know, Chinese people are very big on filial piety, and that's the ultimate sin the blasphemy against God is to hate your father and mother. Well, it sounds bad in English, too, and I've always had trouble with it. Well, it's very simple. The word hate does not literally mean hate. What it means is you've got to love Jesus more than your immediate family, relatively more than. For example, I'll, let me give you a translation, the Good News translation, which is a sort of a paraphrase, Luke 14:26. Those who come to me cannot be my disciples unless they love me more than they love father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and themselves as well. So you see there, the Good News Translation puts it in plain English. I don't know why the Holman Christian Study Bible couldn't do the same. The King James, of course, I understand the old-fashioned English, but the Holman Christian Bible says, hate your father and mother, which leads to confusion. As Adam Clark says, this is a Hebrew idiom. It doesn't mean literally hate. It means to love something less. Now, to prove this, I'm going to use the Holman Christian Study Bible translations of two passages in the Old Testament. First, Genesis 29, 30-31. Jacob slept with Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban, that was Rachel and Leah's father, and he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. Unloved. Leah was unloved. But if we look at that translation in the King James, we see, and when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. And so there, the Holman Christian Study Bible translates the original language into unloved rather than hated, which gives you a whole different flavor. It wasn't that Leah was unloved. She was just loved less than Rachel by comparison, relatively speaking. 
We also look at Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17. Holman Christian Study Bible says this, If a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and what that means is one loved more than the other. One loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved bear him sons. And if the unloved wife has the firstborn son, when that man gives what he has to his sons as an inheritance, he is not to show favoritism to the son of the loved wife as his firstborn over the firstborn of the unloved wife. He must acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved wife, by giving him two shares of the state. So, Unloved wife is repeated over and over through that passage, and in every one of those places, the King James translates it as hated, as the hated wife, the hated wife, the hated wife, the hated wife. Holman Christian Study Bible has the unloved wife. So, let's get that out of our head. Jesus is not telling you to hate your father, not telling you to hate your mother or your wife or your children. Of course, that would violate tons of scriptures. Ephesians 5, about loving your wife, it's all through Ephesians 5. You think Jesus, Paul would contradict Jesus so blatantly like that? It's a language problem, folks. And it's led to a lot of confusion, unfortunately. Now, having said that, uh, by the way, it also says you're supposed to hate your own life. We're not supposed to hate your own life. We're supposed to commit suicide. That's a sin. That's not something to be proud of. All right. So now, think about this. Jesus demands so much personal loyalty that he puts himself over loyalty to your own family. And he says, you want to be my disciple? This is what it's going to take. This, of course, will disabuse the crowds who are following him and lusting for messianic kingdom benefits. This is going to sort of sober them up a little bit. Now, I will say this. In the last week, I've had four young Chinese women, all of whom are dedicated Christians, all of whom are toying with yoking themselves with an unbelieving husband. I don't know why it happened all at once. Jesus said that if you love me, you'll keep my commands. He said, if you listen to me, you will listen to the people that I send. He sent the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, do not be unequally yoked. It's just as plain as it can be. And I I told one of these young women, I said, you are setting yourself up above God. You are point blank violating the scriptures and you're going to pay a price she was engaged to a non-christian the others are just playing around with it and i'm going to try to talk them out of it or try to get the guy saved well folks you know jesus said if you, you got to hate your own father and mother that would include a fiance or boyfriend if they are going to pull you away from the faith get rid of them or if it's money get rid of it whatever offends you if something if your eye offends you pluck it out quit trying to Pretend that you can be a disciple of Jesus and play around with the world or play around with your own desires. I don't care how legitimate those desires are. Of course you want to love your father and mother. Of course you want to have a Christian husband, sure. But if it comes between Jesus and these things, you better give up the earthly thing or you're not going to be Jesus' disciple. And I might add, you're going to give up a whole ton of blessings and you're going to pay a bitter, bitter price for what you could have had but what you gave away. Foolishness. Jesus said in another passage, Matthew 10, verses 34 through 36, Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. He's talking to people who, of course, are expecting a messianic kingdom, worldwide peace, paradise, millennial-type conditions. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And that's because people hate Jesus, and therefore there's going to be conflict. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Hey, you want to marry a non-Christian guy, girls? 
Find out what it's like to have an enemy right in your own household. Oh, well, you know, you know, Dr. Trotter, I, I know some people who aren't Christians and they have a happy marriage. Do they have a Christian marriage? Is the husband, is he willing to die for his wife like this, like Paul requires in Ephesians 5? Does he wash his wife with the water of the word? Does he lead her into a deep relationship with the Lord? No, because he doesn't even know Jesus. So I don't want to hear it. It's nonsense. What happens when you believe in Jesus, your family members, some of them might turn against you. And Jesus is preparing his believers for this. Now, this means a lot to me because I had an atheist father. I know what it's like to have a family member turned on you. It ain't pleasant. But I guarantee you I'd much rather have Jesus than have peace in my household. I'd much rather have Jesus. Jesus knew he could demand this kind of loyalty because he knew he was the Son of God. And I know he's the Son of God, and that's why... I give loyalty to him, loyalty to him over everything, political party, job, business, family, you name it. I haven't come to the point where I'd have to give my life instead of renouncing Jesus. I would hope I would do the right thing and give my life gladly for Jesus. That's how much he means to me. Luke 14, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, Jesus is talking about what it means to be a disciple. Now, a disciple is a follower. But it's more than a follower, it's a, it, and it's more than a student. It's somebody who who is trained deeply or, or closely by his master, and it involves not just academic impartation of academic knowledge from the master to the disciple, but it means learning about uh, from the master's life, life experiences. So Jesus is saying, you want to come after me and be my disciple? You want to reflect the image of God? And the way that I want you to do that, you got to bear your own cross. What does that mean? Well, the uh, uh, initial reference is to the act of a condemned criminal who has been capitally condemned. He has to carry his place to the cross of, to the place of execution, or at least the cross beam, the beam of the cross to the place of execution. And the soldiers would, tie, would nail it together or tie it together with a stake when they got there. And this was a very common method of execution. In fact, disciples from Galilee would know exactly what this meant, according to my NIV study Bible, because hundreds of men had been executed by these means in Galilee. So when Jesus said, bear your, bear your own cross, he didn't mean just suffer a trial. Now, we've heard that phrase so much in Christian circles, we've got to bear our own cross to follow Jesus, that we, that we tend to take it in its secondary application bear his own cross as a metaphor for we have to suffer trials. But remember the original when Jesus spoke it, it wasn't a metaphor. It was literal. you got to carry your own cross because, folks, the Romans and the Jews are coming after you to kill you. So you better get your idea out of your head that this is going to be the golden age of the Messianic kingdom with me riding in on a white horse and slaying and smiting my enemies and delivering us from the Roman rule and giving us financial prosperity from here on. Uh-uh. That ain't the way it's going to be. Somebody is going to condemn you to death and make you carry your own cross. Now think about who Jesus was. How could he demand that of people? Because lots of people did it. They came after him and became his disciple. And that's why the church is still here today. And I'll say, I, 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 you know, the early church had its problems, of course, because they're human beings like we are. But I can't help but admire them because what they had to go through, as bad as things we have to go through today, what they had to go through back then at the beginning of the church was very, very bad. They'll take you from synagogue to synagogue. They'll flog you. They'll kill you. And they did. The, the Jewish leaders did, just like they killed Jesus. But they knew that it was worth dying for Jesus.
Let's look at some other uh, parallel passages where Jesus expresses this thought about you have to bear your own cross before you are my disciple. These are not parallel passages. In fact, there are no parallel passages for our passage at hand here. Luke 14, 25 through 35 is by itself in Luke. Luke 9, 23, Then he said to them all, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now here Jesus does use the expression metaphorically to say you've got to bear trials every day. Follow Jesus. Matthew 10, 38, And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You know, that sounds kind of cheeky, doesn't it? You're not worthy of me unless you take up your cross. Only God, only a man who was God could say something like that. I don't even think people like Adolf Hitler and Alexander the Great and all these other, Napoleon, and all these other great political leaders, they never came up and said things like that. John 19:17, carrying his own cross, he went out to what is called Skull Place, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. Well, now here you have an example where Jesus actually did carry his own cross, and he's saying, look, like master, like son, or like master, like disciple, they made me carry my own cross to execution. Guess what? You're my disciple. You carry my name. They're going to do the same thing to some of you. When I think of all the Christians that have been persecuted in China or in the Middle East, it's still going on, folks. Mark 8, 34 through 35. Summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Now, there's a, Mark adds some few details here. Sure, you're bearing your cross to die, but you're not really losing your life. You're getting eternal life. You're getting a kingdom. But those who want to save their life by denying Jesus and saying, I'm not going to have anything to do with that because I don't want to get in trouble, you're going to lose it. I, I gave this passage to a bunch of communist professors, of course, in China, the privileged elites of Chinese society are communist, and they were all over here on a junket, PhD junket, I call it. And they were all members of the Communist Party, and they wanted to learn about American culture and American thinking. And so I gave them the hot gospel. I gave them these verses here about cost of discipleship. And I said, you know, hey, you want to save your life? You want to have all the perks of society, but you're going to lose it eventually. You're going to lose it if you don't follow Jesus. Because there's one way to the Father through Jesus. Now, even though the original meaning of bear your own cross means to be crucified literally, but there's other lesser evils than death that you have to bear. We shouldn't forget that. John Gill points out all sorts of afflictions, reproaches, persecutions, and death itself. And particularly the ill will, hatred, and persecution of near relations and friends. I'm telling you, I'm not going to kid you. It's not fun when you have your friends and your relatives turn on you, make fun of you, saying, oh, you're just a religious fanatic. What's the matter with you? You've given up all your friends. You're so stupid. You know, all the stupid things that Christians hear. You're going to have to get used to that. It's going to happen. I used to be very concerned about that. And after a while, I, got, I just kind of got used to it. And it's ironic. Once I got used to it, I haven't noticed it in years, people saying I'm stupid. And I'm, I'm talking, I've been in a communist country. I have been, uh, in a, even worse than that, in American colleges. Where, and, but nobody ever laughed at me when they found out I was a Christian. I never went out openly talking about it, but they all found out sooner or later, and they respected me. They they didn't give me any trouble, uh, but if they had, it wouldn't have mattered because I was used to it. Because it was in high school when I was a compromised, wussy puss, craven Christian who was scared of my own shadow that when people made fun of me, it, it tore me up. And I guess you just have to get through that stage. You have to go through that stage where you get used to the fact that 
they hated the master, they're going to hate the disciple, but you love him so much you don't care. And you know he can, he can protect you from all that. Luke 14, verses 28 through 30. Jesus continues talking to the crowds following him down to the Passover feast out of Perea. For which of you, um, let me say this, a lot of those crowds came from Galilee. They would cross over the Jordan River to the east of the Jordan River into Perea to go south to Jerusalem because Samaritans hated them so badly and didn't like all those Jews coming through their territory. So that's probably why there were so many people following Jesus. Jesus says to them in verse 28 of Luke 14, For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers, onlookers will begin to make fun of him, saying, This man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Now, Jesus is talking about people who say they're going to be your disciples and then quit. Now, if I had a nickel for every person I saw that's done this, I've just had an unpleasant experience where I led somebody to the Lord, tried, oh, long distance across the other side of the world, tried to disciple them. Tried to teach them the scripture, teach them the word, tried to encourage them on how they could make a happy life. Oh, no. She's got to go shack up with somebody, you know. Throw it all. She couldn't finish. You know, she took all the benefits. Oh, yeah, Jesus forgave for her for her sins. And she was all broken up and suicidal and all messed up. And Jesus did all kind of wonderful things for her. But now, no, she's going to shack up with somebody and turn her back on the faith. Lots of people like that. The cost in her case was just to live a sexually moral life. Oh, that's too hard for me. You know, this is the 25th. In fact, that's what she said. Well, you know, you're talking like my parents. This is the 21st century. And that same stupidity. My answer to that was, oh, yeah, really? Well, guess what? People think like you just like they did in the first century, the second century, the third century. Everybody's been screwing around with everybody for 2,000 years. It has nothing to do with how old you are. Anyway, lots of people don't consider what it means to be a Christian. And I really think that every Christian, young convert, and I'm going to start doing this, and I have done it. In fact, I'm getting ready to do it with one next Monday night. Every young Christian convert at some point in their training needs to be confronted with this scripture and say, Are you, do you have enough guts to follow Jesus to finish your discipleship? Or are you just going to start and then run out and quit when the going gets tough? Notice Jesus said people are going to laugh at you. And they go, oh, you said you were a Christian. Think of all these Justin Bieber, Britney Spears type Christians that get up in, in the news and say, I'm a Christian. I'm a virgin. Ah. Apparently that's the way you define a Christian these days is virgin. They say all these things. The next thing you know, they're screwing around, doing drugs, getting in fights, getting into court. You know, whatever. It's, it's absurd. Calculate the cost. Jesus, as the NIV Study Bible says, Jesus did not want a blind, naive commitment that expected only blessings. And folks, unfortunately, that's a lot of Christians today. They want the blessings, but they don't want the discipleship, the discipline. But a Christian who will discipline himself and, and follow the master, read his Bible, go to church, pray, you know, the Christianity 101, the things that nobody wants to talk about. If they'll do that, they'll have a strong tower. They'll finish the building. Luke 14, 31 through 33, Jesus continues, or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? Notice this king is outnumbered, so it's a serious thing to go to war with somebody that's got twice your forces. And, and the parallel here is you're a Christian, you're outnumbered because you're going to be persecuted, especially at the beginning of the church here. So, you know, if you're going to go into war, maybe you better think about it and make dead sure you're willing to die. Verse 32, if not, 
if he doesn't sit down and calculate the cost. If not, why, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. So Jesus, again, is saying calculate the cost, just as he said to the people who were, who were trying to build a tower. He uses another analogy. He says, you better think about it. You're about to go into battle where you're two to one outnumbered. To get in that kind of battle, you're going to have to leave your house. You've got to quit worrying about the, king, the, the opposing army getting your house and tearing it down. And everything that's in it, you better give them all up and follow me. And I'll give you the victory. But it's not going to be easy, fleshly speaking, or, or earthly speaking. Speaking in terms of this world is not going to be easy. And you've got to give up everything, all his possessions. Now you say, what well, does that mean? I go out and just give all my money away? Well, obviously not. You can prove that to not be what Jesus meant in plenty of scriptures in the Bible. There were lots of times when people didn't give up all their possessions, but there were times that they did. All the disciples, remember uh, Peter and James and John, they gave up their businesses, their boats, and all their possessions and said bye-bye. And they were supported by a bunch of women wandering through the Israeli, the, the, the countryside of Israel following a carpenter. So they gave up all their possessions. The book of Hebrews talks about people who lost all their possessions when they were persecuted for Jesus. What it means is you've got to be willing to give them up. And if you're not willing to give them up, God can test you in that by stock market crashes, health disasters, lawsuits, you know, all kinds of, kind of stuff that, that happens to people. And another way he can test your ability to give up your possessions, are you giving? Now, I, you know, saying goodbye to all your possessions, if you did that, you wouldn't be able to give anymore, obviously. So you got to have some money in order to be able to give it. But you better give it. You better be given on a regular basis. Or pretty soon your possessions will grab a hold of you and you will be like an American Christian. Here's another verse, Luke 14, 26, if not parallel. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, that's, excuse me, that's not another verse. That's the verse I just read. Excuse me. What I meant to say was... This verse here means to say goodbye to all your possessions. It includes saying goodbye to the goodwill of your non-Christian family who might start persecuting you. Now, this happens all the time, especially in China. These young people get saved and their parents. I know one young girl about 30 years old, I guess. Her father said, you, you marry a non-Christian? Excuse me, you marry a Christian? He was a Buddhist. You marry a Christian, I'm going to kick you out of the house and you'll never talk to me again. You hear stories like this all the time. She said, well, that's fine, but I'm going to marry a Christian. This is a, this is a good story to counteract the story I just told you. She says, I'm going to marry a Christian. I, you know, if you throw me out, you throw me out. And she did eventually, even though she's past the age of marriage in China, you get to be 30 and you're not married yet, you are a failure of the worst kind. You are worse than a prostitute. You are a worthless piece of garbage. She made it past 30, unmarried, and she says, I'm still going to marry a Christian. And she did. She got a godly man who was a leader in his church. She's married. So she said goodbye to her family members. She said, bye-bye. I'm not going to listen to what you say. Luke 14, 34 through 35. Jesus continues, and this is a little bit off the subject, I guess you could say. Well, let me read it first. Now, salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen. Now, I guess you could say this ties in with the previous verse because he's saying that if you want to be a, a half-caught quasi-disciple and you want to quit before the tower is built 
and you want to go charging into the battle even though you're outnumbered without even realizing the, what the trouble that you're going to be facing is, if you want to do that, you're not going to be salty anymore. Now, what does he mean by salty? Let's look at what that metaphor means. How is salt good? Two reasons. It makes meat taste good, and it keeps flesh from rotting. It's a preservative. And so, basically, if you want to be salt to your neighbors and to your friends and to your family, you make each other's lives taste good, and you keep each other from the corruption of sin. Now, if you do that, that's a good thing. But if you quit doing that, if you quit making each other's lives taste good, and if you quit keeping each other from the corruption of sin, you might as well not be salt. You're not even fit to be thrown into the ground or on a manure pile. Now, what does that mean? Well, salt, apparently, in moderate measure, could make manure a little bit more hefty, a little bit more efficacious in making plants grow, could make better fertilizer if it's a little salt thrown in. Same thing for the soil, a little bit of salt. Of course, you don't put enough salt on there that you completely kill the soil. So what Jesus is saying is you quit being causing your friends and your neighbors to taste good in their life, to taste good things in their life. And if you quit keeping them from the corruption of, of sin, you are not even fit for food, for preservative of meat, for taste, for preservative of meat. You're not even good for being fertilizer, to helping the fertilizer be better fertilizer. In other words, you are good for nothing, and you get thrown out. And so Jesus is saying, you want to be my disciple? You better know what it means to be salt. You better know what it means to make others taste good and to keep others from the corruption of sin. Then you can be my disciple. All right, that's the end of this chapter. I will say this. It sounds awful hard, but for anybody who's done it and has completely given his life to Jesus, and there are lots of us out there that have done that, it's worth it. It's worth it. God bless you, will bless you more. There are so many blessings in the gospel. You can sit down and list them all and you can't even keep up with all the blessings. And that's in this hard life. Think about the blessings that come after this hard life is over. That's what Jesus said. That's what he claimed. And he rose again from the dead to back up his claims. If you think that this world's got something better than that, lots of luck to you on that one. Cocaine, maybe a little mistress on the side. Oh, yeah. Have fun in court. Have fun at the rehab center. Ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with this audio. We'll take up Luke chapter 15 next. In Luke 15, Jesus continues his Perean ministry. He has to defend himself against the Pharisees for receiving sinners, and then he gives the three lost parables, the lost sheep parable, the lost coin parable, and the lost son parable. So we'll do that next audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.